Hi, my name's Chris. I'm an alcoholic. My spray date's February 5th, 1987, and uh, up to uh, just a few weeks ago, my home group was the West Portland Group in Portland, Oregon. I just moved to San Francisco, so I'm still searching for a home group, although the Second Tradition Group is doing a kind of a number trying to get me to join them. But uh, um, So I got 15 to 20 minutes. I want to share a little bit of what I used to be like, what happened, what I'm like now. I uh, drank for 11 years, and for whatever reason, in those 11 years, my disease progressed very rapidly. In those 11 years, I was arrested 15 or 16 different times for alcohol-related offenses. I had three DUIs, went to two treatment centers, was uh, hospitalized for alcohol withdrawal, uh, went to detoxes, was a daily drinker the majority of my drinking career, and then ultimately ended up becoming a daily oblivion drinker. And just to give you guys an idea where my mind can still go, uh, about five years ago, I was speaking at a meeting, and before I came in to speak, I was thinking about how I was going to start my talk off, and I thought, well, I'll go through the kind of the, the low, low lights or highlights, and I kind of went through the list. Okay, 15, 16 alcohol-related rest, three DUIs, used to wet the bed on a regular basis, blackout drinker, couldn't hold a job, daily oblivion drinking, two treatment centers, so forth. When I got to the end of the list, my real quiet voice in my head said, you know, maybe you're not really an alcoholic. And uh, I recoiled from that thought as, as, as if from a hot flame. But um, the fact of the matter is, is that was the exact sort of thinking that used to get me drunk. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, they told me that they talked about the first drink is what gets you. And I know what they mean by that or what they meant by that. But I'm here to say that what happened to me before I took that first drink is what got me. And that was that insanity that preceded the first drink. I never got struck drunk. I always had something in my mind that would convince me that this time's going to be different. No matter what the consequences were, no matter how bad it was, something in my mind would say, you know, if you only drink a glass of water in between each drink tonight, then you're going to be okay. And I'd go, yeah, that's it. You know, and, you know, the only thing that did was I wet the bed earlier in the evening than I normally did. But, um, but you know, with a sane mind, with a mind that's been, had been treated by the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, those things that I used to think of seem really stupid today. Like, you know, a glass of water, drinking only wine coolers, eating a certain type of food or a full meal, whatever it was that was going to fix my drinking seems really stupid with a sane mind, with a mind that has undergone a certain uh, treatment through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But in the height of my alcoholism with an insane mind, it seems like exactly what's the, it's the truth. It's the way it is, of course. Why didn't I think about that before? If I only do this, then I'll be okay. Um, all my life, I was somebody that was uncomfortable in my own skin. I was alienated from, uh, seemed like there was me and everybody else in the world, and there was a big barrier between me and everybody else. I had a sense of impending doom, which progressed to an sense of impending insanity. I was just uncomfortable. Uh, and a certain amount of alcohol gave me relief from that. A certain amount of alcohol made me feel like what I thought other people felt like normally. And... If it wasn't for the phenomenon of craving, that loss of control that once I ingest alcohol, if I was somebody that my magic number was 8 to 10 drinks, if I could drink the 8 to 10 drinks and then sip on number 11 and number 12 and just maintain what those 8 to 10 drinks did for me, I never would have come here. I'd be out there tonight drinking my 8 to 10 drinks and then maintaining those effects. 
I absolutely love the effects produced by alcohol. It's what allowed me to become the person I always wanted to be and allowed me to participate in life in a way that I saw people, normal people, doing just normally. Um, anyway, fast forwarding, uh, I did all the stuff that alcoholics do. I did geographics. I went to um, all sorts of extremes. I uh, ended up in a dry logging camp in Alaska. Thought that would be the, you know, the answer. And uh, that, was, uh, that worked for three weeks. I didn't drink. I worked uh, every day until you know, two timber fallers showed up with a, a bottle of whiskey and said, you want a drink? And very rapidly, my alcoholic mind went through the, it's like, God, it's been three weeks. I didn't even go through the DTs when I came off of alcohol this time. You know, I, I haven't craved, I haven't really even thought about alcohol. I'm probably not an alcoholic after all. Sure, I'll have a drink. And I took the bottle and I tipped it up. And I took about three big swallows of it and they grabbed it from me and they said, hey, we got to make this last. I thought we were going to drink the bottle, but what they had brought was... They had brought a bottle of whiskey to like sip on after work, you know, take a shot or two after work. So what happened to me is I had the equivalent of about two or three straight shots of whiskey and I was an hour and a half float plane ride away from the nearest liquor store or tavern. And that phenomenon of craving was on me. And it was, it was like an itch I couldn't scratch. It was like every cell and fiber in my body wanted alcohol and I could not get it. So next morning, of course, I caught a float plane into uh, Ketchikan and went to a bar and uh, drinking, got thrown in jail that night. And, uh, you know, and that's, just, and that's just the way I drank. And um, just to give you an idea of my last year of drinking, I became, ultimately became a daily oblivion drinker. I drank, drank to unconsciousness or blackout on a daily basis. I couldn't hold a job. All my relationships with other human beings had been broken by now as a result of my drinking. And I desperately wanted to not drink, and yet I drink every day that way. And um, that last year, a year and a half, was the darkest time of my life, just full of despair. And, um, and I gave everything I had to not drink and drank every day. Finally, what happened is in... Uh, January of 1987, I was doing eight days of jail time for my third DUI, and I was doing it on weekends. I'd go in on Friday, spend the weekend in jail. They'd release me on Sunday. And between the third and the fourth weekend, I was arrested. I was down in a little town um, on the uh, Oregon-California border called Ashland, and I'd been arrested there numerous times and caused all sorts of uh, problems there, and the police department knew me on a uh, first-name basis. And... Uh, and between the third and the fourth weekend, I got arrested, and the police department took me aside and said, you know, Mr. Clark, you've got to do something about your drinking. You've got a hell of a drinking problem. And I, you know, gave him lip service. Yeah, of course, I'll do something. And the following day, I was walking down the street, and um, there was one of those sidewalk preachers that, you know, uh, they're not really a preacher, but the guys that stand on the sidewalk of the Bible and read biblical passages to people that come by. And as I came by this guy, he read something out of the Bible to me. I had no idea what it was. But it seemed to relate to the night before, you know, that I should go see this guy, Joe Fisher, that they had recommended to get help, you know, from my drinking problem. And I thought to myself, if I was one of those AA people and there are no coincidences and there's some sort of hand of God in my life, I would say, oh, this is God. You know, I should actually act on it. And I took a few more steps and I had a moment of clarity and I thought, you know, what would happen if for once in my life I didn't dismiss that stuff as being stupid and trivial and actually acted on it even though I don't believe in it. And almost out of my own amusement, I decided to act on it even though I didn't believe in it. And I went up to see this guy, Joe uh, F., Joe Fisher, and he um, 
before I went into his office, I thought, you know, please not Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, anything but AA, you know, tell me you went to aversion therapy, 10 days, a couple two-day follow-ups, and now your life's wonderful. Because I'd been exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I'd probably been to 20 or 30 AA meetings by that time. And uh, I had been to meetings where there was uh, no semblance of a primary purpose. There was uh, a lot of talk in Portland um, at the time. There was a lot of talk about Portland's a big heroin city. There was people would come up and give pitches about slamming dope, scoring dope, so forth. Very interesting stories, but I couldn't identify. I couldn't relate to any of it. And then there was also this other type of meeting where they would sit in circles and they would ask you know, who, who has a problem today, and somebody give the problem of the week, and the rest of the people would kind of talk about their problems. And it's like, you know, that was nice too, except for I was dying from a terminal progressive disease called alcoholism, and I just couldn't connect what was there. So I didn't want AA. And Joe, at the end of my conversation with him, invited, invited me to an AA meeting. I didn't want to go, but I felt an, a sense of obligation to go uh, since I did ask him for help. And I went to this AA meeting. It was the Thursday night Clay Street meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Ashland, Oregon. And that group was a very, it was, I was almost going to say structured, but it wasn't really that greatly structured. It was somewhat structured, but they had a strong emphasis on primary purpose and singleness of purpose there. And when I sat in the back, I raised my hand as a newcomer. The speaker talked for about 30 minutes, and she told a little bit of what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anybody tell my story, or tell a story, their story in AA. And then each participant went around the room, and they shared a little bit of what they used to be like and what happened. And little by little, as they did that, something happened to me. It was the magic of identification. What these people had done is created an atmosphere of identification where an alcoholic come in, like me, and sit down, and what happened by the end of the meeting was I realized I was in a room full of people that drank the way I drank, thought the way I thought, and felt the way I felt, and yet these people were staying sober. Some of them had like six months of sobriety and a year and a couple years, and I was blown away. And that planted a tiny seed of hope. You know, in many ways... Um, the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. The steps, I recovered as a result of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, but because the traditions were alive and well in that group, that got me to come back. Because one week later, on February 4th of 1987, I went out one more time to prove that I could beat this game. My plan was I was going to drink 10 drinks, shut it down by 10 or 11 o'clock, come home, go to bed, get a good night's sleep, and get up the next morning and be like a regular person. The guy that was supposed to come and pick me up to take me to the bars was running late. I drank nine beers sitting in my living room waiting for him to come pick me up to go drink my ten drinks. And uh, so I kind of blew my plan before I left the house. And I uh, ended up uh, down in a couple bars. And I was in one bar, which was my favorite drinking establishment. And uh, and I had one of those alcoholic, you know, bright ideas as I was sitting there. I mean, I drank this place every night, and they loved me in this place. And um Cliff was the name of the bartender, and I asked Cliff, I've seen it out of a black up, I remember having this conversation with him, I uh, decided, I thought, the answer to my problem is if I became a bartender, then I could just go to work and drink, and you know, just my life would work out better that way. And so I inquired about getting a job from Cliff, this bartender, and he assured me that I was a shoe-in for the position that was open as a bartender. Then I went back into the blackout, and I don't know if five minutes passed or three hours passed, but the next thing I know, I had Cliff over the bar and was going to work him over because apparently it 86 me from the bar. And um, he ended up calling the police, and I was arrested one more time. 
And um, no different than any other night of drinking except for one thing. Something changed. And I have no way to uh, describe or articulate what happened. But something inside of me just broke. And I was arrested. I was booked. I used to be a, you know, a horrible cop fighter. This night I broke down and I cried. I cried as they processed me. They ended up taking me home at the end of the evening. And my last conscious thought that night as I laid in bed was, something's different about tonight. I don't know what it is, but I wonder if I'll still feel this way in the morning. And I did. I came to on February 5th, 1987, and, I, and something was still different. And what was different is I was absolutely beaten by alcohol. Alcohol was my master. It beat me. And what happened is, as a result of being beat by alcohol, I was willing to face my alcoholism. All that stuff that, uh, that I drank for relief and you know, that sense of ease and comfort to get away from, I was willing to face for the first time in my life. You know, at that moment, in total desperation, prior to that willingness, um, death was a more attractive alternative than continuing living the way I was living. I was, uh, had I had a crystal ball that morning that I could have looked into and I could have seen if I just drink for another six months, uh, I'll be dead, I would have just drank myself to death. My fear and what I was terrified of is that if I continued, I was going to live another two years or another five years or another ten years and continue to spiral further and further down this miserable existence of a life I was living. And at that moment, I cried out to a God that I didn't believe in or at least didn't, didn't want to believe in. And I said, God, please make this stop or kill me. And I, I'm certain I said that. I think I also said the Lord's Prayer, but I'm not certain about that. And I didn't, know, I didn't know this at the time, but the obsession to drink alcohol was removed that morning. And I only knew that in hindsight. But on February 4th of 1987, I lived with an obsession to drink alcohol on a daily basis. And on February 5th, 1987, I was freed of that obsession and been freed of it for, you know, 23 plus years since then. As a result of, one, the surrender that I went through that morning on the 5th, and two, by a whole lot of actions that I've taken in this program that in the beginning seemed to have no relevance to what my problem was in the first place. And so through that surrender, I became willing to come into AA and do all sorts of things that I didn't believe in, that I thought were goofy, that made me bristle with, uh, you know, with rebellion. But I did them anyway because I saw other people in AA were doing these things and staying sober. And I started doing, doing as they did. And I just want to close, just, I want to talk just a little bit about coming to believe in God uh, and close on that. That was my problem when I came to A. You know, now I'm in a group where I identified. These people were just like me. There was this strong, you know, sense of identification and singleness of purpose in this, in this room. So there was no denying it. And so I was doing as these people do. But the God thing was a huge issue for, for me. And um, they told me in the beginning, they said, look, they said, fake it till you make it. And then they pointed to the chapter we agnostics. They said, just a willingness to believe is enough to make a start in this program. And then one guy put it in a way that I, that I could really understand. He said, look, he goes, you don't have to believe in God to make a start in this program. You just have to take actions as if you believe in God. And that I could do. And so I started taking actions as if I believed in God. And little by little, by taking these actions as if I believed in God, for the first time in my entire life, my life started working out. Up to that point, it was, it was as if I was a square peg trying to fit in a round hole over and over and over. And, this, and now it, 
it, you know, I, it started to unfold and it started working. And little by little, I came to believe as a result of taking actions, even though I didn't believe. I came across that line in the, in the chapter of We Agnostics where it says, our ideas didn't work, but the God idea did. I was probably 90 days sober when I saw that. And when I saw that, I was like, yeah, my ideas have never worked. But this God idea stuff does. I don't know that I necessarily believe in God, but there's something about this that is working. And that created a, a foundation and a platform to where I ultimately came to believe in a, a power greater than myself and ultimately became a believer in Alcoholics Anonymous as not just something to keep me physical, physically sober, although that's all I came here for. And if that's all I would have found here, I would have considered that a bargain. But I found that there's so much more than just that physical sobriety. And, uh, and it has become, it became as a result of that foundation in step two and followed by the rest of the steps, a design for living that um, has worked in my life. You know, there's only been two things that has ever worked in my life. A certain amount of alcohol gave me relief and peace and allowed me to live comfortably amongst the earth people out there. And a certain amount of actions in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether I believed in them or not, has allowed me to some peace and comfort and allowed me to live amongst the earth people out there. Thanks for my sobriety. Wasn't he wonderful? Let's give him another round of applause. I do have one another announcement. Uh, I don't know if I need to remind you, but if you would please shut off your, uh, turn off your cell phones or turn them to silent mode for tonight as well as the rest of the weekend, because I forgot. So I'm reminding you. Next up, we have Gail McCoy from Akron, Ohio. Let's give her a great big welcome. Come on. Come on. Hello everyone, my name is Gail and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is May 13th, 1978, and I did get sober in Akron, Ohio. I have a home group, I have a sponsor, and I sponsor. Uh, my mother's name is Rita. I have a boss. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have enough time for all that. Um, but when that first started coming around, we didn't do that in Akron, and it kind of came from the West Coast, I think, and it always makes me kind of laugh when I hear that. Um, <clears throat> I am so happy to be here at the Woodstock of Alcoholics Anonymous. It, you know, I'm a recovering hippie, and um, you'll see that tomorrow night. I have a photo that will prove it. But I always want to put on some tie-dye some bell-bottoms and a headband when I come here, just, just to re-experience that time again. Um, I want to thank my hosts, who took their job very seriously. And uh, they're from Portland, Oregon, um, and uh, they picked me up, and it was uh, Rick and um, Jared. And we just started laughing in fellowship from the minute I, they had me at hello. And we went to this restaurant that they had already eaten at three hours before. They'd been grazing all day. It was the California Pizza Kitchen. And um, I had the best salad I've ever had. And it was awesome. 
But I got a little nervous because my host, Rick, um, ordered a drink. And he said, I, I ordered iced tea, typical non-alcoholic drink. And he said, I'll have an Arnold Palmer. And I said, Bob sent this guy out to pick me up, and this guy's going to have a slip right in front of me. But it didn't turn out to be an alcoholic drink. It was a half lemonade and half iced tea, and it was really good. But um, we did get through that, and we're here, and I'm thrilled. <laughs> I really did think that. I, I thought, Arnold Palmer, you know, I thought it'd come with a little swizzle stick and an umbrella. I didn't know. Um, so um, I found out that I was going to be asked to speak, and like I try to um, live my sober life in Alcoholics Anonymous, I said yes, so I'm not usually dressed like this. Usually, last time I was here, I was on a burlesque stage, and I thought, man, promises do come true in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said, watch out for that hole there, and I said, what's that hole doing there? And I think it was at Whiskey Pete's, of all things. You ever try to tell somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous you're going to Whiskey Pete's for the weekend? And they said, be careful of that hole, because I said, what's that hole doing there? They said, well, that's where the pole goes. I was so disappointed, because you guys would have really gotten your money's worth out of me if that. <laughs> that's all I remember. I mean, I do remember that. So anyway, um, I am really happy to be here. And I'm going to tell you a little bit. I better check my watch here uh, about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. Uh, what it was like for me was that I grew up under the influence of people under the influence. And um, I have the disease of alcoholism, but I didn't know it. I picked up my first drink when I was 14, and as already been stated, there's a lot of symptoms. You know the 44 questions. We all have seen those, but there was one that I think is the most prominent one that unites all of us, um, and that is um, the phenomenon of craving. I picked up a first drink, and the allergy kicked off for me, and I couldn't stop. And that's how I always drank. I never set out to, to get drunk. I just set out to have a drink. But then the drink took a drink, and I ended up either in a blackout <clears throat> or in some crazy um, problem or position. And um, <laughs> I don't know why I said that, but um, that's too much information, isn't it? Um, and then I would have, you know, there's nothing too attractive about a woman who's had too much to drink. And... <laughs> And the next day, you guys would all be laughing about it, and I'd be dying. I'd just be dying, an emotional hangover, you know, and the guilt and the shame and the remorse that I lived with every time I picked up a drink. Um, and I didn't know what was wrong. I, I, I had grown up with alcoholism. I had no perspective. Um, I didn't know that was my problem. I thought you were my problem. Um, I, had a, um, I made a list of people who had harmed me, and I was waiting for them to make amends. Um, I, there was this, this guy once, he was, a, he was a past delegate, and he said, alcoholics love to be offended. You know, I still think about that. We love to be offended, and I grew up to be such a good victim. You know, I, I could not count what was right with life. I took things for granted. I had no humility. Um, it was what was wrong. I, I kept a list of what was wrong. Um, and I could outdo you. I was such a good pessimist that if it was my birthday, um, I wouldn't tell you about it. That way, you wouldn't remember it, and I could prove that I was unlovable. And, and of course, be right about that. And I'd have my own pity party, and that was just a way of life for me, the victim thinking. I, I saw everything that way. The glass was half empty, not half full. 
Um, now, I didn't go to jail. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, they said, Gail, you have a high bottom, and I said, thank you. Um, but not on the inside, because just like the former speaker said, um, I wanted to die. And if death was peace, then I wanted peace, because I couldn't stop this. This was my problem. And, and I couldn't stop it. And wherever I was, I was never where I was. I mean, if I was uh, grocery shopping, I was thinking about doing the laundry. And if I was doing the laundry, I was thinking about washing the car. And if I was washing the car, I'd be thinking about the bills. And if I was doing the bills, I was thinking about retirement. And then when I'd go to bed at night, my head just wouldn't stop because it could do nothing but think nightmares, raw fear. I don't think I had fear. I think I had terror. So at the end of my drinking, if death was peace, um, then that's what I wanted. And isn't that sad? I'm a child of God, and I don't know it. I don't know how to live my life because when I started drinking at 14, not that I was that mature, I stopped growing. I didn't grow up. I didn't know how to cope. I didn't know how to live. I thought I'd been dealt a bad hand of cards, and everybody had it together. But I'd go to the mall, and everybody was in love but me. And that's just, you know, the sickness in me. So the greatest day of my life was the day I found you. That's my real birthday. Technically, I was dead until I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know what I was walking into. My last drink, um, uh, I blacked out, and I think only Walt Disney could do it justice. Um, the guilt, the shame, and the remorse came. They didn't come running out like paramedics for God when I called. So I decided maybe, you know, that guilt and remorse in the morning, so maybe I'll go shopping. Maybe I'll feel better. Nothing like a shopping trip to make you feel better. And I'm out at the mall. Now, I'm a school teacher. I was sort of like drunk by day in school, you know, I mean, drunk by night in school, mom by day. You can almost see me switch in a phone booth, you know. So I don't want parents or people knowing how I live my life, that secret double life I had. And I'm at the mall, and I'm, I'm bargain addicted, so I'm getting my hair cut for uh, $5, and I'm, I'm going to feel better. And I'm up on stage, and families are gathering, watching, and I'm not going to go to my first meeting. And a girl next to me is in the chair, and she said, weren't you at Stouffer's the other night? And I said, yes, 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 I am. She said, boy, were you drunk. I don't think I ever saw anybody so drunk. It boomed through the whole mall. So I did go to my first meeting that night. Thank God there was a woman leading language of the heart, and I didn't understand what I had walked into, but my heart knew. I was just one of those people. I just, the monkey off my back, I felt safe. I didn't know if I was alcoholic or not, but she said, keep coming back, and I'm so glad I did. Um, I love the program. I love the book. I love the steps. Thank you for mentioning the traditions. The three legacies to me are beyond. I mean, Bill Wilson was an architect. He was a genius. I've kind of become a historian today, so I'm so comfortable with all my buddies up here. Um, it's These posters just kind of bring them into the room with us, and I love that. Um, I think we have a beautiful structure that holds us together. It's a triangle. And I believe in all the principles, because if we just have the 12 steps, there'll be no place to go to practice them if we don't keep the whole structure together. So I, I just need to share that whenever I speak. And now what it was like today. Well, I took off on my journey to come to you. 
And um, on the way, I got a little nervous about a snowstorm coming in. I'm not always a poster child for serenity. And I have this fear of winter. And it's kind of crazy in Northeast Ohio right now. And so I started at the airport to interview people on how they were going to get home. And one girl said, well, I don't care. This girl was just so glad to be traveling. She says, I don't care. I want to let it happen the way it's going to happen. And then she showed me her ring. And she said, you know, oh, I told her why I was coming. Everybody thinks you're coming here to gamble and party. And I ended up telling her I'm coming to an AA conference. And she said, oh, look at my ring. It says on here one day at a time. I'm not one of you, but I love your slogan. So I had this ring made. Then she introduces me to a gentleman that she's traveling with who has 10 years of sobriety. And now I'm really ashamed because the girl wearing the ring has a better program than I do. (laughs) But I want to tell you about something that it's a way we live when we say yes in Alcoholics Anonymous. And and we don't know. We just try to stay honest, open, and willing, and it becomes a way of life. And we try to stay awake because we never know. And as I'm going to stand in line waiting for my seat to be called, there was a young gal there, and I, I, I kind of stood with her, and we talked for a few minutes, of course, about the storm, because I'm obsessing. And she says, you know, I'm on the way to Las Vegas. She said, my father's dying of alcoholism. And I said, really? Oh, after I told her I was coming in for an AA conference, my father, I, she, 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 it was like water to somebody on a desert. And she said, and I said, I'm sorry to hear that. And she said, I'm the oldest of six. I said, I am too. And she started talking about her alcoholic family. And I knew this was going to be a rough trip for her because you know how alcoholic families are in a crisis. They're, they're all in their positions, you know. And so I offered her support. And we had a few minutes to talk. And she said, you know, I drink too much too. And I gave her my card and I said, hang on to that because she's close to where I am, where I live. And then we were hoping to sit together on the plane. I knew she needed some support and she was hungry for anything I could give her, but we couldn't. So I waited for her when we got off the plane and we, we just walked to the baggage area. That's all the time we had. I mean, the total of this whole encounter is maybe 10 minutes. And we walked to the baggage area together and I shared a little bit more with her and I said, you know, um, My family's pretty dysfunctional, too, and I probably won't go home for Christmas. And she looked at me and she said, I want you to come join me for Christmas. That happens in my world. It's those coincidences. In fact, not being a member of the program, she looked at me and she said, this wasn't a coincidence. So my new friend, who I met, I'm now going to be joining at Christmas and hopefully will be a, a link in this beautiful, beautiful program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm looking forward to meeting all of you over the weekend and getting to share more. Tomorrow night I'll be talking about the writing of the big book and uh, a little bit about how just saying yes to Alcoholics Anonymous, doing what I've asked to do, has taken me past my own fears. I could have never become who I am today if I had let fear rule my life. It's just by trusting God and trusting you. So thank you very much.
latest message everywhere, power of the program in an airport. Merry Christmas. Let's get another round of applause. We're going to call up our next speaker, and after he uh, closes out, we're going to have a short break in order for you to gun down a cigarette, five to seven minutes, in order to allow our audio person, Lee, to change CDs uh, for the discs to be recorded for the next five speakers. So without further ado, I'd like to bring up Mr. Cliff Roach. One of my favorites. Time's up. I'm Cliff Roach and I'm an alcoholic, a very old alcoholic. My sobriety date is the 13th of January, 1970, and it took me a long time to get there. Uh, I never drank well my whole life. I drank a lot, but I didn't drink well. Uh, I had one of those things, you know, where I'd be at a party and just be the life of the party, lampshade on the head, tap dancing on the table, everybody's good time, and then I'd get to that drink, and I always knew, I always knew it was that drink. My head would say, this is the one, Cliff. You drink this one, you're going to do tricks. And you know what I said. Well, well, well. <laughs> then I'd have the subsequent drinks, and uh, probably nobody here is old enough to know, but I was a kamikaze drinker, you know. About three after that one, I'll tell you about it was Banzai! And I would run amok. And uh, went to jail some. Uh, was beaten to a pulp regularly. Uh, I was, I'd love to fight, and I was no good at it. It was too bad. Uh, but I did. I, I just fought all the time. And uh, I enjoyed it, I guess. I don't remember. Uh, much of my life is hearsay. <laughs> Wasn't yours? Yeah. I spent my whole life saying I did. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Your aunt, huh? Oh, uh, uh, I really got, I really uh, identified with this guy heard one time. He said he, he'd wake up with these people and he'd look across the bed and go, ah! In my case, uh, she would look up and go, ah! yeah. uh, But I never learned. I never learned. I kept drinking. I, I, my drinking, I divided in half. The times where I was just a occasional drunk when I overdid it and, you know, I got in all that trouble. Uh, second school teacher tonight, after I became a teacher, I became very worried about, you know, committing felonies. <laughs> just a hobby, lighten up for Christ's sake. Uh, and so I, what happened to me is I became a daily drinker. And uh, that's the part of my alcoholism I like to remember to, you know, to get up every morning and say, I'm not going to do it today. And, uh, you know, puke for a while and say, I'm not going to do it today. 
And then by two o'clock, what's the first drink I have? You know? And uh, I'm a functioning alcoholic. I'm one of those guys that goes to work every day and does a job and does it better than you. And uh, I do it better than anybody. But the experts uh, say that 95 to 97 percent of us that die of the disease of alcoholism to become dead from alcoholism are functioning alcoholics like I was. Do the job every day and go home and get bombed every night. And uh, I came to AA the first time in 65, and you seem to be all retarded people to me. Uh, you know, I've got a couple of masters to read, for God's sakes. And I don't know. But <laughs> the third night, this guy said to me, well, we keep it simple here. <laughs> I said, no shit. <laughs> You're going to fool me, Leroy. <laughs> do, 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 do. So they were kind of insulted. Then uh, a couple of days later, I retired from alcoholism. I didn't like you here. Have you ever uh, resigned from AA? I did that several times. Really breaks them up, doesn't it? Cliff, who? But the last time I came here, I, I was the luckiest of all men, and I, uh, I uh, ended up on the doorstep of this little guy who was eight years sober. And uh, he was just a fanatic AA. I used to try to dodge him when I was in and out of AA. They were always trying to help you, those kind of guys, you know. And, but I knocked on their door, and uh, they were so glad to see me. He was so kind to me that first night. I'll never forget that. And then he had a blood transfusion from Marquis de Sade the next day and uh, never said another nice thing to me as long as he lived. Oh, I'm so grateful for that. I am so grateful for that, that he did not accept any of my BS. He did not allow me to be a jerk. And uh, when he was dying... Uh, he had emphysema, for all you smokers who take the break. Uh, they all died of emphysema, didn't they? Bill, well, Bob, cancer, but all the rest of them died of emphysema. Chuck C., my sponsor, everybody. Uh, good luck. Uh, but it's a lousy way to die. It really is, you know. And he was on the bed there, and I had been invited to go up to Anchorage, Alaska, to talk. And so I bent over him in the bed there, and, you know, Put my hands and I said, I've, I've got to go to Alaska. I'll be gone for four days. And he could barely breathe. And he said, he said, yeah, they called me. I told him to send you far away as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing he ever said to me, and I treasure that. Uh, but when I, he had been uh, uh, very active in AA and never done the program. And uh, uh, about uh, four months before that, he was going to commit suicide. He was going to climb the stairs to the Disneyland Hotel and jump off. But he got exhausted trying to climb the stairs. <laughs> so he found Clancy and asked Clancy to be a sponsor. And Clancy made him, for a year, drive 100 miles each way every week to a newcomer meeting and raise his hand as a newcomer. Eight years sober. Had been the New York delegate. And he got a little, so anyway, lucky for Bill, 
Right after that, I showed up. And he had all this to give away. And, uh, and he gave it to me, I'll guarantee it. So we drove, I'll never forget the first week we drove up to, on a Tuesday night, the Pacific Group. It was a much smaller meeting than it is today. And it was in this little room where they just packed them in. Uh, there was two gals with these large breasts, and I get in between them every week. Uh, eight to a row. Yeah, come on. Come on. Uh, but when, the first time I got to the Pacific Group, now, I'm not, I'm not knocking the meetings in Oceanside and Carlsbad in that area, but... In 1970, they were very laid-back paintings. They're very, very much, uh, you know, seven, eight people around the table, stand sober, and, you know, the frost get the rhubarb or something. I don't know. And I liked it. I, I, was, I was grateful to be sober, and I liked them a lot. But I wasn't having a real good time. So I was very early in my sobriety, and we drove up to the Pacific Group, and I, it blew me away. I mean, everybody's needling everybody else, and we're, they're laughing, 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 laughing. I don't know what you were like when you were new, when you, when you last few years you drank, but I never laughed out loud the last two, three years I drank. The only way I could laugh was like, <laughs> that's if you fell down and got hurt, you know. <laughs> It was like, you know, the first night I was there, some clown was up at the mic, and I went, ah, what, was that? what was that? Like stitches tearing to my stomach. But I've been laughing ever since. I go where they're laughing in AA. And uh, we attended, uh, then uh, about five other guys got sober within the next year and a half. And we're all still sober today. One's dead, but he died sober. And pretty soon we would have like two carloads of guys going up to Clancy's meeting every week. And then on Saturday we'd go up and play ball in the yard and that kind of thing. And then shower at somebody's house and then go to dinner and go to a meeting up there. And the magic of that fun, that, you know, having a good time, uh, we thought we ought to try it down in Carlsbad Oceanside. And so we started some new meetings. And in, in Clancy's group in those days, uh, you'd say, uh, I'm Bob, an alcoholic, and they would say, Hi, Bob! And uh, I remember this girl was reading the steps. She said, I'm Karen, an alcoholic. They said, Hi! She, she threw the goddamn book about three feet in the air. And so we, we started doing it in Carlsbad and Oceanside. Oh, it went over. <laughs> I was right behind these three old ladies, you know, and I said, Hi, Bob! Uh, what's the matter with you? Are you crazy? And uh, so there was about six of us. We'd sit together in meetings. Everybody would sit to the either side. They don't want to get in front of us. But the only place they do that now is up in Alaska, up in Anchorage. They still do that. At the Pacific Group, they say, hi, Cliff. Uh, but that's where it started in the Pacific Group. And... Uh, and I just learned to laugh there and learn to have a good time. And then we started this Thursday night meeting there in Carlsbad. There was a meeting in Oceanside. It was called a beginner's meeting. And we went to it every week. But it was not a beginner's meeting. It was a slipper's meeting. It had about 15, 20 guys that had been in and out of the program for 100 years. And they would sit there and sneer their way through the meeting and then go back out and drink again. So a real newcomer 
wonder what the hell's going on, you know? So we got the idea of having a speaker meeting with questions and answers. Uh, one of the guys had gone to the West L.A. meeting where they do that. And, uh, and so we thought we would invite people who had a program <laughs> and hear about their life and what happened to them. And then we could ask them questions. And uh, we started, there were 11 or 12 of us. And now there's about 250 every week. So whatever we did was right. We started a whole bunch of meetings with the idea of laughter in mind. Uh, I can't live without it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, if, if I couldn't laugh, I'd be out there down the road here. You know, have, give me another. I love the laughter. I think it's a spiritual part of the program. I really do. There's over 2 million people sober now, Kali Sadan. Over 2 million. That's more people sober than all the hospitals and all the get-well places and all the halfway houses in the history of the world. And uh, it's because we laugh, I think. Uh, and I probably pretty much only go to meetings where they're laughing. Because uh, I don't like the other kind. We stay sober. To get the expression right, you have to have hemorrhoids really bad. <laughs> And uh, that little electrician uh, sponsored all of us when we were new. And we all learned about sponsoring people from him. And uh, that's been the greatest part of Alcoholics Anonymous for me, is to have the opportunity to work with other men. Uh, I, I'd hate to have been somebody I sponsored in the first seven years. Those poor bastards. I, you think I was Adolf Hitler, for God's sakes. And the wonder any of them stay sober. But as the years have gone on, I've learned how to share with people and care about other people. I'm talking Saturday night about the uh, principles of, uh, what the hell is it? Service. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to give away any of my good stuff. Uh, I'm the fill-in speaker again. Uh, Bob invited me again. I call him the David Korish of AA. I'm sure he'll go up in flames with his followers sometime in some little club somewhere. <laughs> but I won't be in the building. <laughs> I'll be outside going. <laughs> I've been sober now on over 40 years. And it seems like yesterday. Uh, and I sponsor wonderful men. With that goof that started off and went way over time. Uh, and uh, everything I have, everything I'll ever have, every happiness I own, is because of AA. And that's it. AA and you. Thank you. talk and everybody disappears. <laughs> Hi everybody, I'm Dick Tucson and I'm an alcoholic. 
Don't look for my picture up here on the wall. It's not there. I don't know why. I'm as pretty as any of them. And they're all dead. But I'm not. I, uh, I've been around this program quite a while. Uh, 47 years. That don't, that's not a record. And it don't impress some of you people, but it impresses the hell out of me. Because I've never done anything for 47 years in one direction. I, I, uh, I was a bartender here in Las Vegas. And uh, that was 20 years. I was a liquor store owner for 20 years. And I retired for 20 years. That's it. That's the end of it. Not, not very exciting, is it? <laughs> Thank you, Howard. Thank you for the ice cream. It's nice. You should have got some for everybody. <laughs> You're crying about the price. You got two pockets full of money. I, uh, I come to Alcoholics Anonymous because other people suggested strongly that I had to go to AA or get out. The wife I had at that time. And uh, it was my house that she was kicking me out of. I had the house before I had her. And, and, and I didn't think it was quite fair. But I went to that A&A thing. And, and uh, I, she called. I had her call. The TIE club. And, uh, and they said, you have to have, ask him to call. So now I'm hot already. They won't accept her call. So I get on the phone and I'm telling this guy off. And he starts telling me off. So now I figure I have to go down there and whip him. I know where the building is. I drove by it once. So I went down there that night to whip this guy and I'm going up the stairs and I don't know who I'm supposed to hit. I've never seen the guy, I don't know him. So I started getting scared. And I, uh, I went on in with a lot of trepidation. I didn't want to do it. I, I, I just didn't want to do it. And the guy come over to me, he had a New York accent. Well, I didn't like him already. And, and he told me that he, I think he said his name was Joe. I don't remember too much about it. And he told me he was an alcoholic. He says, are you an alcoholic? I said, well, I don't know. I said, my wife and my neighbors tell me I'm an alcoholic, but they ain't too sharp. And he said, well, nobody here will call you an alcoholic. You'll either decide that for yourself or you'll go out and do some more drinking. I thought that was pretty good that he gave me a choice. And he, and he didn't bum rap me. He didn't say, you're a drunken son of a bitch like other people. You know, 
He was pretty nice about it. He said, what do you do for a living? I said, well, when I'm working, I'm a bartender. But I said, right now, I'm between jobs. Nobody wants to hire me. I had, I had one guy in Las Vegas. He says, Dick, I got to let you go. I says, why? He says, you, you're, you're too expensive. I says, you pay me the same wages you pay everybody else, union wages. What? What's? He says, you steal my money and drink my whiskey. And I couldn't say anything. I, I had nothing to say. I had nothing to add to that. Because he was right. But I thought that was a privilege of getting me as a bartender. And, and, and drinking excessively was sort of an occupational hazard. And I told this doctor that one time. I went, I went to a doctor. And I said, do, do you think I drink too much? He says, I don't know. How much do you drink? And I, I couldn't tell him the truth. I said, well, I... I I probably drink excessively once in a while, but I said, it's an occupational hazard. I'm a bartender. And uh, he says, well, booze is poison. He said, it's poison for everybody, not just you. He says, that's why when you drink it, you get sick and you do things you don't want to do. And your mind is controlled by alcohol. He said, Alcohol is poison for everybody. So now I'm going to go out and campaign. You know, I'm, if I have to quit drinking, so is everybody else. <laughs> I'm not going to get by with that shit. <laughs> I wasn't successful with either one of those. I didn't get anybody sober, including myself. I remember going to work one night. I went to work at one o'clock in the morning and uh, uh, I'm putting my bank in and the other bartender's taking his out and, and we're sort of separating things and taking care of business. And this guy is tapping on the bar, tap, 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 tap. Finally, I turn around and I says, you'll have to wait your turn, sir. He's, oh, oh, excuse me. So we get finished changing shifts and pouring myself a drink. I swallowed it. I said, okay, now you're next. What do you want? He said, well, I, I just wanted a beer. You get a beer, but no more tapping on the bar or you're drinking somewhere else. <clears throat> I wouldn't tolerate that kind of stuff. Till, at least till I had a half a dozen drinks. Then I would overlook, you know, the frailties of customers. Like they'd ask me, it's three o'clock in the morning, and they'd say, what time is it, bartender? I said, what's the difference? What's the difference? Well, he says, I'm, I, I'm supposed to be someplace at a certain time. And I said, you better hurry up, you're late. He said, how do you know where I'm going? And I said, if you're asking what time it is, you must be late. <clears throat> it wasn't very funny, was it? Well... I learned things in Alcoholics Anonymous I didn't plan on learning. I remember 
I was sober about two years, and a gal came in the program. She was sharper than me, but I didn't want her to know it. And she mentioned the portion of the big book uh, about honesty, open-minded, and willingness. But these are the essentials of recovery. And I hadn't heard that before. I, I read the book. I thought I read it. But I must have skipped that page or I skipped that paragraph because I don't remember reading that. And she read it. And every time I saw her at a meeting, which was about every day, you know, 47 years ago, there wasn't that many meetings in Las Vegas. You know, you, you'd see the same people at, at, at different meetings because that's all there was. There was one meeting a day. Uh, Las Vegas had five meetings during the week and they didn't have a meeting on Tuesday or Thursday but Henderson had one on Tuesday and Northtown had one on Thursday so in the area we had a meeting every day and you see people you know at those meetings consistently if they were trying to stay sober and I was one of them so somehow I kept going to these meetings wasn't very entertaining and the people were dumb the one the ones that were there you know spouting about how sober they were uh, them and god and, uh, and how life has changed and they're floating off into the sky on a, and, and and i'm looking at them and I, you're lying you're lying asshole. you cannot be that and uh, somebody be talking about crying I said, you never cried like I did. You never cried like I did. Or you wouldn't be two years sober. Two years without a drink is a lifetime. Really was a lifetime. I remember when I got 30 days. You know how long 30 days is without a drink. One time... I forget which wife I had, but I promised her. Well, that's not meant to be funny. I lived through it, so you know it wasn't very funny. But anyway, now I forgot. People laugh because I forgot. You ought to see what goes on in my head. You think that's funny. <clears throat> All right. I'll have to start someplace else. This wife I had. She told me that I had to quit drinking. Or get out. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I, 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 had, I had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't want to. I didn't think that was the answer. I thought the answer was a little more scotch and a little more vodka. And if things got real bad, I would mix white port and vodka together. Now, if you've never tried it, don't knock it.
And when you get to heaven, you can ask for it. Give me a bottle of white port and a bottle of vodka. Great. My mouth is watering now. <laughs> Honesty, open-minded, and willingness. But these are the essentials of recovery. Now, the first letters of those three words makes up another word. Makes up the word of how or who. And she told me this. And I thought, God, I wish I was as smart as she was. I really wished I, I could think of things like that. Because that would help me. And I, I read it in a book and I thought, she wasn't so smart. She just read that page before I did. She wasn't smart. I uh, certainly wasn't honest. You know I wasn't honest. I didn't know anything about open-mindedness. You know, it, it was a word that had no meaning whatsoever. She said, what does open-mindedness mean, Dick? And I said, it means open-minded. Yeah, but what does it mean? And I said, it means open-minded. I, I couldn't I couldn't explain it to you. I didn't know. And willingness? I was at an AA meeting. How willing do you want me to be? I listened to people in AA. I had a sponsor. He was a peaceful guy. Maybe that's what impressed me about him, but I was impressed that he was a businessman. I wanted to be a businessman. I wanted to be a success at something. I, I was married five times and totally unsuccessful at that. And uh, I, I, I wanted to be successful, and, and he was. So I picked him out for a sponsor. And uh, I would ask him questions. What does this mean? What does this mean? And, he, and he'd never tell me. He'd tell me where to go to get it. I, uh, I remember I, I didn't understand the book. The, the first 164 pages just couldn't comprehend it. And he'd say, I, I would suggest you go to a, a step study meeting or a book study meeting. It was one of each in Las Vegas. And he said, listen to those people. He says, they can give you the answers. They'll give you more answers than I can give you. I can only give you one, so go to them. And uh, he was a good sponsor. I have, I have no complaints, no criticism of my sponsor. He died. All them old people die. I don't think it's going to happen to me tonight. <laughs> how, how, how long am I supposed to spout all this wisdom up here? Is this directions about how long I talk? Am I through? Jeez, I was just getting warmed up. <laughs> There's some good stuff you missed. But I, 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 I guess that's the way it goes. First your money and then your clothes. Thank you. <laughs>